Good morning. It's good to see each of you today, and I want to thank each of you for coming and braving the heat. Um, It is saying fairly circulated in here, and so for that we give God praise and know that he will give us a spirit of perseverance uh, to be able to persevere through the word of God being preached. We're going to be looking today at Philippians chapter 2. If you want to take your Bibles and turn there, the title of the message is Christ humiliation and exaltation. There's probably no more profound biblical truth that is hard to wrap our brains around, our finite minds around, than the incarnation of Jesus. That the second person of the Holy Trinity would take on our humanity and and become a man and dwell among us, and yet remaining 100% God and 100% man and then going to the cross to die in our stead. It is something in which at least my brain short circuits on trying to fully comprehend and understand, but we know that the scriptures teach that, and thus we believe it. And one of the most profound sections of describing both the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ is found in Philippians 2. Martin Luther said the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. The incarnation is one of the most grand and awesome things that God has ever done. Salvation to sinful man would be impossible without it. So this is something that God has done out of his great love for his people to intervene in time and space according to the plan of God from before the foundation of the world to send Jesus to be the covenant mediator, to die in our place as a substitute. It's good news. Erdanian Judson, a missionary about 200 years ago, first American Baptist missionary, Uh, went to India, and then a year later went to Burma. And as he's teaching the truth of the incarnation, a Burmese teacher uh, told him as he interacted with him, I just can't embrace Christianity because of this fact that a king would send his own son to suffer. He couldn't wrap his mind around that idea. And it is difficult to comprehend. It is difficult to understand if you don't take it in light of the other doctrines of Scripture. Judson went on to say, he responded to him, you cannot be a disciple of Christ if you do not believe that. In other words, if you do not believe that the Father, out of love, sending the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ, to come and to suffer for sinners, if you don't believe that, or you think God is less God because he's done that, you cannot be a believer It's an amazing thing. Peter writes that the angels long to look into these things. He says in 1 Peter 1 and verse 10, as to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace or the that would come and made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The angels long to look in to understand that. Well, let's read the text uh, just to give us the the broader context because I am going to make reference of that. Verses 1 to 4, the appeal to unity and oneness in the context of the church is really what what he's setting forth. And then he gives this as an illustration. 
So let's read beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, by maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us understanding and insight into your word as we seek to grapple with these uh, deep theological truths. And Lord, to the end, that we would be those changed people, that we would be those that walk in humility, that we would be those that, that guard the unity that we share in our families and in our church family above all else. And Lord, as we see this illustrated in the humiliation of our Lord Lord, we pray that you would motivate us, that you would melt our hearts, that you would kindle the fires of affection and adoration and praise for this Christ, our dear Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, just to set the context very briefly, um, Philippians is one of the prison epistles. He's in prison. It's not his final imprisonment. The Philippian church, the church at Philippi, had partnered with him in the spreading of the gospel. In chapter 1 and verse 5, or well, verse 3 to 5, I thank God in my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. What they did, this church in Philippi, is they provided resources for the spreading of the gospel, even though Paul was in prison. They provided resources such as daily bread, because you weren't fed when you were in prison there. You depended on others from outside to providing for you. Uh, They provided companionship with Epaphroditus. That's later in chapter 2. And so this idea of partnership and that partnership, participation, and fellowship all are translations of the word koinonia. They were true kindred spirits. And Paul has much to commend them. But there is this one area of of, um, contention that exists In chapter 4 and verse 2, he urges these two women to live in harmony with the Lord. And and even in chapter 127, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he goes on to say, being of one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, being in one spirit. 
It's, it's what he's saying is, is, look, when you're on the offensive line of a football team, just uh, to illustrate it that way, you don't let the defensive linemen on the other side get through to get to the runner. You're locked arm in arm. You're together. You're with one purpose, one mind, and one spirit, striving together for the gospel. He says in 129, it's been graced, it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in his name, which is wonderful, right? That's a gift from God. We don't somehow just figure it out. God opens our heart, but also to suffer for his sake. And then he gets to chapter two here, and he says, he gives these four propositions, which really means since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there's fellowship in the spirit and affection and compassion, make my joy complete. I want my joy to be overflowing. It's like when you're pouring your wife a cup of coffee and your son asks you something and you're pouring and suddenly you look over and it's all overflowing. That's the idea. Paul says, I want, I want my joy to be overflowing because of the unity that you display. And that's what he says here. He goes on in verse 2, that you would be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And that one purpose is the glory of God, the spread of the gospel, if we take the epistle in its totality. But it's also that as we're about the church being militant, right, and taking the gospel to a lost and dying world, that we are unified together. That individual local congregations would be unified and that there would not be division or the seeds of discord. That there would not be the wicked little gossips and did you hear this and did you hear that? That that stuff would be set apart because we're of one mind. And if there is, as our brother Marlon preached the other night in our evening service, that if there is a conflict that we go and we talk to that brother We don't talk to everybody else about the brother. We go to the brother to talk to the brother about the conflict, and we work that out. And then oftentimes that's that's done. It's put put away, and there's no bitterness and ill feelings that just fester. it's, it's, It's a poisonous cancer, discord, and division in the church. And so Paul's main concern, or his concern here is that they would be of the same mind. And so he says in verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit. And then the but is a strong opposite here. It's, you have the negative and the positive. Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit. And we'll just stop there. How much do we do from selfishness? Even in ministry in the church, is it for recognition? Is it for self-promotion or whatever? We need to examine ourselves. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then verse 4 is an expansion on verse 3. Again, a negative and a positive. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And so when it says, do not merely look out, it's scopio in the original. It's, it's the idea. It's not just a quick glance. There's several words for looking in the Greek. This is where you take out a telescope and you're looking at the moon. You know, if your dad sets up a telescope, kids, and has it zoomed in on the moon, do you just come up and go, oh, that's nice. <laughs> no, you, you, you look at it. You study it. Wow, look at those craters and that kind of thing. It's, it's, a, it's a contemplation. It's a focusing and looking and considering in the mind. And that's the idea here. It's the idea to look critically 
not critically in a negative sense, but and to watch closely. And so he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but the interest of others. So that means when a need is shared in our prayer meeting, a certain person that maybe you don't know real well, but there's a need that you look out and you consider, maybe in your mind's eye, not that you're staring at the person, how might I deny myself and be a blessing to that person who has a need to maybe have their house cleaned or a ride to a a doctor visit or something along those lines. Maybe just fellowship. I'm just lonely. I want to be married. Okay, let me carve out time in my schedule to meet with that person just to be an encouragement to them. And so to look out, to consider, to watch closely how you might do these things. But then Paul rolls into verse 5 with the third command of the book. In fact, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude did Christ Jesus have? How can we know the mind of God, right? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Well, Paul lays this out for us. And so we're going to consider this uh, five points. I promise they're all going to be relatively quick. Um, The first four are D's. I couldn't think of a fifth D. I didn't have the time to really even try to think of a fifth D. But if you think of one, you can let me know later. But in verse 5, the design of humility. And actually, before we even jump into that, we need to understand that this this is a theological diamond. Okay, Verses 6 to 11, what we're going to look at is a theological diamond. And it's not as though Paul says, and Philippians, since you partnered with me, I can't wait to share with you the most, the most recent theological nugget that I've discovered. I can't wait to share that. No, it comes as an illustration of practical exhortation to how we are to behave as the church. Dennis Johnson, professor at Westminster, had said this, in heightened language and matchless eloquence, Paul tells the story of a king and how he stooped to serve and who by serving conquered. And that, that's the amazing thing, that he would, and humiliation that he would actually conquer and humbling himself to the point of death that he would actually be victorious. And so we need to grasp this, and, and I'll say it several times, that as he would take on humanity, he's not ceasing to become God. He remained God the whole time. He never gave up his deity. He set aside his right and, and, and concealed his glory, as it were, in his humanity. So let's, let's unpack this. We're going to go through it relatively quickly. Verse 5, the design of humility. And really, this, this command here in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves. It's a reoccurring word in this book. It means to think biblically. Frone, it's the idea of the mind and how you think. And to have translated, have this attitude here and in several other places. It, it occurred in verse 2, be of the same mind. Okay, It's a reoccurring word ten times in this letter. Um, About 40% of the whole New Testament uses is in this one short letter. And so we're to have this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. And verse 5 serves as a hinge verse. Verses 1 to 4, practical exhortation to the church. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And then this is a hinge verse. And then verses 6 to 11 is the next section there. So to put it another way, we need more conformity 
to the likeness of Christ. This idea of have this attitude in yourselves, I think, is the idea that we need to be so disposed. How is it proper for me, who's united to Christ as a new covenant Christian, how is it proper for me to interact with others? It's like, you know, a computer reset. If you still have, sometimes Macs, but if you still have Windows, you know how you have to power it down and kind of like, let's get this thing refreshed, you know? Well, sometimes we need to do that with our mind. Have this attitude in yourselves rather than looking out for yourself, but for the interest of others. Paul writes similarly in Romans 15, be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Earlier, he says, for even Christ did not please himself. And so we see this illustrated in Christ. So we need this computer reset. We need to realign our thinking. We need to realize that though this text is very densely theological, that there's ethical implications for us as the church. So that's the design. Now let's look at verse 6, the descent into humiliation. Who, speaking of Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is uh, interesting, this idea of the form of God. Uh, the word occurs only twice in this passage uh, uh, in the whole New Testament, except for once in one of the Gospels of Christ of appearing. But this form of God, it, it speaks of an outward manifestation of an inward reality. So although Christ was in the form of God, that, that he really was God in all of his majesty, in all of his glory, he's in the form of God, yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? A thing to be seized upon, a right to be asserted, okay? Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So God is pictured in Christ here as the preexistent uh, Christ clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. He indeed was equal with God. In Hebrews chapter 1, you have that verse in verse 3. Yeah, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. That's a profound statement. And that particular word occurs only there. It's used of coinage of stamping an imprint on a coin or a stamp or something like that or a wax seal. It's the exact representation of his nature, and that's who Christ was. He truly was God. And yet the infinite took on finite and did not, uh, took on finite and, and yet remained sinless. Of course, he never let go of his deity he was definitely truly God. You remember how this is manifested again and again. Luke chapter 5. They're fishing, right? Jesus comes and he says, cast the net out on this side. Peter's, we've been fishing all night. <laughs> and so they cast it over. What happens? The net begins ripping. There's so much fish. Peter falls to his knees and says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He realized he was face to face with the creator. He was face to face with deity. In that situation, the disciples on the Emmaus Road, as, as he's walking with them and they're fellowshipping and they're talking about all of this, and he's talking about how the, all the Old Testament pointed to him. And they later said, when he disappeared from among them, did not our hearts burn within us as he shared and talked with us? So he is 
equal with God, and yet he voluntarily set those things aside, as it were, uh, by veiling and concealing his glory, and he set those things aside. Well, let's look in verse 7, the depths of humiliation. It says in verse 7, but, and by the way, here's a huge contrast, though he existed in the majesty and glory of God, I'm, I'm adding that uh, because that's the intent. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead, the complete opposite, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. A strong contrast, although he is full deity, although he's truly God, he humbles himself and empties himself. Now again, this is not, as the canonic theologians of the 19th century would say, that he, he, he ceased keeping some of the attributes of God. That, that in other words, he ceased being 100% God because some of the attributes did not apply to him anymore. We deny that heresy here at Grace Bible Church. But what we need to understand is when he humbles himself, it's not subtracting attributes, it's actually adding full humanity to the deity that he already is. So he's, and yet, and this is very, very important, though he adds this divine nature, a complete human nature, it's different than us because it's not polluted with the filth of Adam's sin. And so that sin that we all are born with, and all of our children and our children's children are all born with this, this, this as, as sinners that did not apply to Jesus. We know that he was impregnated in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. He was without sin. And yet he empties himself. And, and again, it's, it's this idea of refusal to cling to the advantages and privileges of God. He, he conceals his radiant glory. He, he, as it were, even empties himself of some of his authority in time and space. He says in John 5, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He emptied himself of his riches. Though he was rich, for your sakes he what? Became poor. Why? So that you might be rich. So that you might be spiritual rich, spiritually rich. That's why he empties himself. Why he became poor. Some of the, sometimes you see his attributes on display in John chapter 1. Before Philip called you, he says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, speaking uh, of Nathaniel there, and obviously his um, omniscience of knowing where he is. And then later, though, in Matthew 24, he says, no one knows when the Son of Man will come. Not men, not even the Son of Man. So he restricted his omniscience, gave up the prerogatives of deity in some situations. John Calvin is helpful. He says, Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time that it might not be seen under the weakness of the flesh. Hence, he laid aside his glory in the view of man, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. I think that's a very helpful statement. When our minds are prone to say, maybe somehow he became less than God in his humanity. And then the second part of verse 7, he empties himself. This is just 
a descent. It goes lower and lower and lower. But he emptied himself, and then he takes the form of a bondservant. The likeness of a bondservant. It's, it, it, here's the second expression of that, morphe. And so he's, he's in the form of God, all the majesty of God, but then he actually takes on the form of a bondservant. He really was a bondservant. Paul's point is that he wants us to understand the attitude of our Lord, that the infinite King of Kings voluntarily took a downward step of condensation in unimaginable proportions that we cannot wrap our minds around. It's like a, a king of, a, of, a, of an empire, and he decides he wants to see how the people live, and so he puts on regular clothes and goes to, down to the beach and Deanza Cove and uh, Mission Bay or whatever, and he's just kind of mingling. He's blending in, maybe, you know, and the king is there, and, he, and then he becomes their slave, and then he even dies for them. That's the idea. But did he ever cease to be a king even though he took on the ordinary clothes? No, he was still the king. And so too with Christ. As he takes on humanity, he is still Almighty God. Now what is a slave? This idea of a bondservant. It's really just slave. One third of the Roman Empire was slaves. Bought and sold as property. You don't even own the clothes on your back. That's what he became for us. You own nothing took this demeaning posture of a slave. He emptied himself by taking, uh, taking this on, this, this additions again rather than subtraction. We had that beautiful picture in, in John's Gospel in chapter 13 where, where what does it say? He, he gets up from supper, he girds himself with a towel, and he bends down and what washes the disciples' feet. The mud and the filth on the callous, stinky feet. He's washing their feet as a demonstration of humility and a demonstration of stooping down in love for his people. He tells us later in that chapter that we're to do the same thing. So the fact that he stooped down, and I think when when Peter reflects back in his epistle, gird yourselves with humility, I think he's thinking of Christ when he girded himself with a towel. That's the par excellence example of humility that Peter had ever witnessed in his life. So he says, gird ourselves. And it is something we have to put on. It doesn't come natural to us. What amazing love God had for his people. From eternity past in the covenant of redemption and planning to create the world and and a people in light of the fall to redeem and to save some to to send the Son on a rescue mission into the world with a mission to save sinners. It's a marvelous thing. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, the end of verse 7, being made in the likeness of man. Likeness of man. It was a real likeness. It wasn't a phantom humanity, as the Gnostics would say. He wasn't just... Uh, not just that he became a man, but that he fully identified with our humanity. And yet Jesus wasn't just a mere copy of a man or a facsimile print of what a man is. He was a true man. The two natures, perfect divine deity and Godhead and perfect humanity, complete humanity with all of, our, all of the infirmities that you and I know of being weak, 
tired, thirsty, hungry, all of those types of things, all of the infirmities he took upon himself because of his full humanity. And so what theologians call this is the hypostatic union. It's a technical term that describes the union of Christ's humanity and his deity together in one person. But it's not 50-50, it's 100 and 100. He never diminished being man in any way and never diminished his Godhead in any way. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, please. I love this passage. It'll be familiar, I think, to some of you. Uh, After teaching all day throughout Mark 4, all the parables and so forth, he tells his disciples, when evening had come, let us go to the other side. And they got into a boat, verse 36. And he was, and the other boats were with him. And verse 37, there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was filling up with water. Now, a typical Galilean fishing boat boat was maybe 20, I don't remember the exact measurements, less than 30 feet long. It wasn't a cruise ship, okay? The waves crashing over would be felt, and the boat was filling up with water, okay? It's a fishing boat that held about 15 people or so. So, there, you know, you can picture this, kids. I mean, a big old storm, and you're, you're frightened. I mean, the thing's tottering. The waves are coming over. The boat's filling up. You, you know, if your father was a daddy, are, are you concerned here? And so that's exactly what the disciples do. They go to Jesus, verse 38. But Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What does he do? You know, he got up, he rebukes the wind, verse 39, hush, be still, and the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. Well, let me stop there. Go back to when he's asleep on the cushion. That is a picture of his what? Humanity. Um, we were discussing this as a family, and one of my, my youngest child, who's not in here, uh, said, oh, I thought that was a demonstration of his deity, that, that he could sleep through the storm. <laughs> but uh, it's a demonstration of his humanity. But look at the disciples' response. You would expect, that was close. Thank you, Jesus, right? But look in verse 40. And he said to them, why were you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And then it says in verse 41, and they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Now, do you think they were more afraid of the waves and the storm? I think, I think the, the point here is that they were very much afraid indicates that they were, there was a terror that had gripped them because they've come face to face with deity. This is God. <laughs> and so it's a picture, I think, of his humanity and his deity uh, there in one text. Other examples could be cited. Well, let's move on to verse 8. We've seen the design of humility, the descent into humiliation, the depths of humiliation, and now our fourth point, the decline into death, verse 8. It's shocking for the eternal God-man to suffer unto death. Again, it's hard to wrap our minds around this. And he says, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. He humbled himself. 
he humbled himself so low, even in all those mock trials and and humiliations and slappings and hitting and spitting on him and the mock trials declaring the innocent guilty. But this final aspect of his humiliation is, and, and, and Paul indicates his obedience as he went to death. He even said in the garden, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. His obedience is the anthem of Romans 5, verses 12 to 19. Even through the obedience of the one, the many are made righteous. A picture of substitution, and by his obedience, we are free. Ralph Martin says his obedience is a sure token of his deity and authority, for only the divine being can accept death as obedience. For ordinary men, it is a necessity. So his de- divine glory was veiled behind the human flesh, the slaves closing, but this was the plan of the Father, that he would die to bring about the redemption of his people. And then he's, notice he says here, At the end of verse 8, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. It's not that he was beheaded. It's not that he had a a quick, you know, painless death, stoned, hanged, or whatever, something that would be quick. But Paul is emphasizing here, even death on a cross. Even put to death is a criminal It's a climax of the humiliation that he went to the cross. Listen to what one man um, had said. He says, crucifixion included pain and death and horrible dizziness, cramped thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, all intensified up to the point at which they think it can be endured, but all stopping just short of the point that would give the sufferer a relief of unconsciousness. The position made movement painful, and the lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. Crucifixion is a terrible way to die. This idea of even death on a cross, this is the bottom. This is the depths of despair that he did, fit for a slave and criminals. And yet we know it says in the law, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, but he became a curse for us that we might be set free. We need to be reminded, brethren, we're about to jump into his exaltation in light of this, but I want to drive this point home. Listen to me carefully. That his death and his atoning death and bringing about salvation, I don't want you to think about it. It is true, all of his people, and it's true for most of the people in here for the church, but it's true for you individually. It's true for you individually. Listen to Spurgeon. He says, How low was our dear Redeemer brought? Go and stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the crown, the thorn crown marked his scourging shoulders. See the hands and feet that have given up by rough iron nails in his whole self-mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pangs and the throes of inward grief showing themselves in this outward frame. And hear the, sh- the thrilling sh- shriek, my God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me. Something that he endured for us who are in Christ individually and corporately. Well, let's move on. The last point, Christ's exaltation, uh, here set forth in verse 9. For this reason, that is in light of all of that humiliation and descent into the depths of humiliation, for this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and every, those in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a huge shift here in light of all that he, that, that he subjected himself to. It's now the subject of the verbs is now the Father, not what Christ did. Christ emptied himself. Christ uh, took on the, this, these forms and all that. But here now, it's, and what is God's response? Two verbs. He's super exalted. The word only occurs here. It means, you know, exalted above what we could ever imagine and bestowed. He's bestowed on him a name. This idea that he, uh, 100% successful and that he saves every one of those for whom he died. But how is he exalted? He's exalted in the resurrection. Uh, the angel, he is, he is risen. He is not here. The ascension where he's lifted up as they were looking on Acts 1-9 and a cloud received them, him out of their sight that he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, that there he is and he sits and he reigns in glory. And it's a fascinating thing to think about what did Jesus take back to heaven that he did not have there before he came to earth. It's his humanity. He remains the God-man, even in glory. And that's why he can be our great high priest, because he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's able to sympathize with those. And because he's been tempted in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. He's been coronated, a crowning authority. All authority has been given to me, he says in the Great Commission. Acts 5, verse 31. He is the one whom God exalted in his to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. He is exalted in the resurrection, the ascension, the, the crowning authority and coronation as our great high priest. In Ephesians chapter 1, it sets forth that he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, he's put all things in subjection under his feet and what? Has given him head over all things in the church. He is the head of the church. He is the one that when a church goes so far astray and departs from orthodoxy, where he goes, according to Revelation, and removes the candlestick. He removes the semblance of life and the presence of God. So that he's exalted in such a way so that that anthem of praise in Revelation 5, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. An anthem that we will sing for all eternity. But secondly, not only is he super exalted, he's bestowed on him a name. 
Not just any name, the name. And this word for bestowed is simply the word grace that he's, he's freely given with favor. He's given graciously the name that is above every name. There's something about a name. A name oftentimes has reputation connected with it. In olden times, the last name of a particular family would be known for centuries before. A name speaks of rank and honor and status and reputation and all of those things. Names are important in the Bible. Abram did not remain named Abram, right? He was named Abraham. There's a new mission. There's, there's a change that, that takes place. Likewise, Jacob became Israel. It fits a new role, a, a new role and a calling. In the book Hebrews chapter 1, we could have read as well, again and again, the Psalms are quoted there in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Well, what is the name, we say? Well, let's look. God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name. Notice the definite article. It's not just any name. It's above every other name. It says Jesus, at the name of Jesus they will bow, but also in verse 11 that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. So yes, Jesus, he's the one who saves. Yes, he's Christ, the Messiah who has come, but he is Lord who you will submit to and bow the knee and confess. Indeed, I believe here the name that is given is that he indeed is Lord. And that represents Yahweh. And the Old Testament is again and again through Isaiah and many of the books. Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. When Jesus comes back in judgment in Revelation 19, it says on his robe and on his thigh there is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the unwavering response, brethren, to you is that either in this life you bow the knee and confess that he's Lord or you wait before you stand before him and you will be forced to bow the knee and confess and then be sent to hell to spend an everlasting uh, time in hell and torment. And so the response here is that we bow and we confess And it's all at the end of verse 11 to what? To the glory of God the Father. One of the reformational truths, right? Sola de la gloria. It's over here this time. Sola de la gloria for the glory of God alone. The whole work of Christ is for the glory of God alone. The Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. So I encourage you, Confess him and bow your knee in submission to his lordship today. Well, brothers and sisters, as we conclude, this is the true meaning of the incarnation. This is thinking Christmas in June with 95 or 100 degrees. <laughs> this is what the incarnation's all about. He came on a mission. He took on humanity with a mission. The one who existed in glory, the one who is worshipped by angels, humbled himself And in God's plan, it is mandatory for salvation. Christ redeemed us from the curse 
of the law having become a curse for us. That's a picture of substitution. He stood in my place because I can never answer to God and take my suitcase of all my good works and all the good things I've done. I would be cast into hell if I'm putting confidence in those. I put confidence in what Christ has done. He kept God's law perfectly on behalf of his people and on my behalf. I stand in his righteousness, not in my own. My own righteousness will drag me into the pit of hell. And so that's why we look to Christ and we trust in him. He came into this world as a human being, even as a slave of no reputation. He obeyed his father to death, even death on a cross. He says in one of the Psalms quoted in Hebrews 10, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to what? To do your will, O God. And yet, the eternal Son died as the worst of criminals. The sinless one died as a criminal, killed by humans. He died on the cross, scorned while he's completely naked. What shame he endured. He suffered the anathema of God as the Father poured out his unmitigated wrath upon his own Son. All of Pastor Kurt's sin put upon Christ that he would suffer for it so that his righteousness can be imputed to me. He suffered the rejection of men. What agony. But our glorious, sinless substitute bore the sins of his people. What a mercy. And so drawing this back to as I began... Verses 1 to 4 in this verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves. We are to have an attitude of humility, looking out for the interest of others, cherishing the unity and the oneness that we have all around the common bond of Christ who has died for us. The next time you want to exert your rights or think that you're so great and all of that, think of what Jesus has gone through. And remember that you're nothing. You're expendable to find great joy in serving in humility, even behind the scenes. What amazing love the Lord has shown us. This is what makes him worthy of our worship. When we understand the depths of the humiliation that he's gone through to bring salvation to us, we want to worship him, and we will worship him for all eternity. Paul cries out the the end of this doctrinal section of Romans, at the end of Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Humble yourselves today, brethren, those of you who are in Christ. Put aside exerting your rights. Put aside thinking of yourself as so great and serve with humility Those that humble themselves will be exalted, repeated again and again in the Old and New Testament. But those who exalt themselves, what? Will be humbled. Let us walk in humility. And if you're outside of Christ, flee to Christ because you will stand before him someday. Every human will stand before him. We must all appear, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may be recompensed for the deeds that we have done, whether good or or bad. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word that is unchanging, that abides forever. We do pray, Lord, that you would indeed kindle the fire of affection and adoration within our own hearts. Forgive us, O Lord, where we have walked in a way that is not pleasing to you. 
We thank you for the blood of Christ, that that righteous blood will atone for all eternity. And so, Lord, we ask you to forgive us for Christ's sake, and we pray that you would help us to have this frame of mind to reset our brains, to be determined to cherish unity and oneness, and to run from gossip and division. We thank you again for Christ and what he's done. In Jesus' name, amen.